CD2. They practiced that very night in Glod's obsessively neat lodgings. These were behind a tannery in Fedra Road, and were probably safe from the wandering ears of the Musicians' Guild. They were also freshly painted and well scrubbed. The tiny room sparkled. You never got cockroaches or rats or any kind of vermin in a dwarf home. At least not while the owner could still hold a frying pan. Glod and Imp sat and watched Leas the Troll hit his rocks. What do you think? he said when he'd finished. Is that all you do? said Imp after a while. They're rocks, said the Troll patiently. That's all you can do. Bump, bump, bump. Hmm. Can I have a go? said Glod. He sat behind the array of stones and looked at them for a while. Then he rearranged a few of them, took a couple of hammers out of his toolbox, and tapped a stone experimentally. Now, let's see, he said. Bam, 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 bam. Beside Imp, the guitar strings hummed. Without a shirt, said Glod. What? said Imp. Just a bit of musical nonsense, said Glod, like shaving a haircut two pence. Sorry? Bam, 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 bam. Shaving a haircut good value for two pence, said Leas. Imp looked hard at the stones. Percussion wasn't approved of in Hlamidos either. The bards said that anyone could hit a rock or a hollow log with a stick. That wasn't music. Besides, it was, and here they dropped their voices, too animal. The guitar hummed. It seemed to pick up sounds. Imp suddenly had a nagging feeling that there was a lot you could do with percussion. Can I try? he said. He picked up the hammers. There was the faintest of tones from the guitar. Forty-five seconds later, he put down the hammers. The echoes died away. Why did you hit me on the helmet at the end there? said Glod carefully. Oh, sorry, said Imp. I think I got carried away. I thought you were a symbol. It was very unusual, said the troll. The music's in the stones, said Imp. You just have to let it out. There's music in everything if you know how to find it. Can I try that riff, said Leas. He took the hammers and shuffled around behind the stones again. A bam, bop, bim, bop, bim, bam, boom. What did you do to them? he said. The sound wild. Sounded good to me, said Glod. Sounded the whole lot better. Imp slept that night wedged between Glod's very small bed and the bulk of Leas. After a while, he snored. Beside him, the strings hummed gently in harmony. Lulled by their almost imperceptible sound, he'd completely forgotten about the harp. Susan awoke. Something was tugging at her ear. She opened her eyes. Squeak? Oh, no. She sat up in bed. The rest of the girls were asleep. The window was open because the school encouraged fresh air. It was available in large amounts for free. The skeletal rat leapt onto the window ledge and then, when it had made sure that she was watching, jumped into the night. As Susan saw it, the world offered two choices. She could go back to bed, or she could follow the rat. Which would be a stupid thing to do. Soppy people in books did that sort of thing. They ended up in some idiot world with goblins and feeble-minded talking animals. And they were such sad, wet girls. They always let things happen to them without making any effort. They just went around saying things like... Oh, my goodness me, when it was obvious that any sensible human being could soon get the place properly organised. Actually, when you thought of it like that, it was tempting. The world held too much fluffy thinking. She always told herself that it was the job of people like Susan, if there were any more like her, to sort it out. She pulled on her dressing gown and climbed over the sill, holding on until the last moment and dropping into a flower bed. The rat was a tiny shape scurrying across the moonlit lawn. She followed it around to the stables where it vanished somewhere in the shadows. As she stood feeling slightly chilly and more than slightly an idiot, it returned dragging an object rather bigger than itself. It looked like a bundle of old rags. The skeletal rat walked around the side of it and gave the ragged bundle a good hard kick. All right, all right. The bundle opened one eye, which swivelled around wildly until it focused on Susan. I warn you said the bundle. I don't do the N-word. I'm sorry, said Susan. The bundle rolled over, staggered upright, and extended two scruffy wings. The rat stopped kicking it. I'm a raven, aren't I? it said. 
one of the few birds who speak. The first thing people say is, Oh, you're a raven, go on, say the N-word. If I had a penny every time that's happened, I'd have... Squeak! All right, all right. The raven ruffled its feathers. This thing here is the death of rats. Note the scythe and cowl, yes. Death of rats, very big in the rat world. The death of rats bowed. Tends to spend a lot of time under barns and anywhere people have put down a plate of bran laced with strychnine, said the raven. Very conscientious. Squeak. All right, um, what does it, uh, he want with me, said Susan. I'm not a rat. Very perspicacious of you, said the raven. Look, I didn't ask to do this, you know. I was asleep on my skull. Next minute he had a grip on my leg. Being a raven, as I said, I'm naturally an occult bird. Sorry, said Susan. I know this is all one of those dreams, so I want to make sure I understand it. You said you were asleep on your skull. Oh, not on my personal skull, said the raven. It's someone else's. Whose? The raven's eyes spun wildly. It never managed to have both eyes pointing in the same direction. Susan had to resist trying to move around to follow them. How do I know? They don't come with a label on them, it said. It's just a skull. Look, I work for this wizard, right, down in the town. I sit on this skull all day and go, Gah! at people. Why? Because a raven sitting on a skull and going, it's as much part of your actual wizarding modus operandi as a big dribbling candles and the old stuffed alligator hanging from the ceiling. Don't you know anything? I should have thought anyone knows that who knows anything about anything. Why, a proper wizard might as well not even have bubbling grain stuff in bottles as be without his raven sitting on a skull and going, Gah! Squeak! Look! You have to lead up to things with humans, said the raven wearily. One eye focused on Susan again. He's not one for subtleties in. Rats don't argue questions of a philosophical nature when they're dead. Anyway, I'm the only person round here he knows who can talk. Humans can talk, said Susan. Oh, indeed, said the raven. But the key point about humans, a crucial distinction, you might say, is that they're not prone to being woken up in the middle of the night by a skeletal rat. Who needs an interpreter in a hurry? Anyway, humans can't see him. I can see him. Ah, I think you've put your digit on the nub, crooks and gist of it all, said the raven. The marrow, as you might say. Look, said Susan, I'd just like you to know that I don't believe any of this. I don't believe there's a death of rats and a cow carrying a scythe. He's standing in front of you. That's no reason to believe it. I can say you've certainly had a proper education, said the raven sourly. Susan stared down at the death of rats. There was a blue glow deep in its eye sockets. Squeak. The thing is, said the raven, that he's gone again. Who? Your grandfather. Grandad Lezek? How can he be gone again? He's dead. You're, um... Other grandfather, said the raven. I haven't got... Images rose from the mud at the bottom of her mind. Something about a horse, and there was a room full of whispers, and a bathtub that seemed to fit in somewhere, and fields of wheat came into it too. This is what happens when people try to educate their children, said the raven, instead of telling them things. I thought my other granddad was also dead, said Susan. Squeak! The rat says you've got to come with him, it's very important. The image of Miss Butts rose like a Valkyrie in Susan's mind. This was silliness. Oh no, said Susan, it must be midnight already and we've got a geography exam tomorrow. The raven opened its beak in astonishment. You can't be saying that, it said. You really expect me to take instructions from a, a, a bony rat and a talking raven? I'm going back. No, you're not, said the raven. No one with any blood in them would go back now. You'd never find things out if you went back now. 
You just get educated. But I haven't got time, Susan wailed. Ah, oh, time, said the raven. Time's mainly habit. Time is not a particular feature of things for you. How do you... You'll have to find out, won't you? Squeak! The raven jumped up and down excitedly. Can I tell her? Can I tell her? It squawked. It swivelled its eyes towards Susan. Your grandfather, it said, is... Da-da-da-da! Death! Squeak! She's got to know it some time, said the raven. Deaf? My grandfather is deaf, said Susan. You've got me out here in the middle of the night to talk about hearing difficulties. I didn't say deaf. I said your grandfather is da 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 squeak All right, have it your own way. Susan backed away while the two of them argued. Then she grasped the skirts of her nightdress and ran out of the yard and across the damp lawns. The window was still open. She managed, by standing on the sill of the one below, to grab the ledge and heave herself up and into the dormitory. She got into bed and pulled the blankets over her head. After a while, she realised that this was an unintelligent reaction, but she left them where they were anyway. She dreamed of horses and coaches and a clock without hands. Do you think we could have handled that better? Squeak! Da-da-da-da-da! Squeak! How do you expect me to put it? Your grandfather is death, just like that. Where's the sense of occasion? Humans like drama. Squeak! The death of rats pointed out. Rats is different. Squeak! I reckon I ought to call it a night, said the raven. Ravens are not generally nocturnal, you know. It scratched at its bill with a foot. Do you just do rats, or mice and hamsters and weasels and stuff like that as well? Squeak. Gerbils. How about gerbils? Squeak. Fancy that? I never knew that. Death of gerbils, too. Amazing how you can catch up with them on those treadmills. Squeak. Please yourself. There are the people of the day and the creatures of the night. And it's important to remember that the creatures of the night aren't simply the people of the day staying up late because they think that makes them cool and interesting. It takes a lot more than heavy mascara and a pale complexion to cross the divide. Heredity can help, of course. The raven had grown up in the forever crumbling, ivy-clad Tower of Art, overlooking Unseen University in far Ankh-Morpork. Ravens are naturally intelligent birds, and magical leakage, which has a tendency to exaggerate things, had done the rest. It didn't have a name. Animals don't normally bother with them. The wizard, who thought he owned him, called him Quoth, but that was only because he didn't have a sense of humour, and like most people without a sense of humour, prided himself on the sense of humour he hadn't in fact got. The raven flew back to the wizard's house, skimmed in through the open window, and took up his roost on the skull. Poor kid, he said. That's destiny for you, said the skull. I don't blame her for trying to be normal, considering. Yes, said the skull. Quit while you're ahead, that's what I say. The owner of a grain silo in Ankh-Morpork was having a bit of a crackdown. The death of rats could hear the distant yapping of the terriers. It was going to be a busy night. It would be too hard to describe the death of rats' thought processes, or even be certain that he had any. He had a feeling that he shouldn't have involved the raven, but humans set a great store by words. Rats don't think very far ahead, except in general terms. In general terms, he was very, very worried. He hadn't expected education. Susan got through the next morning without having to go non-existent. Geography consisted of the flora of the Stowe Plains, cabbages, chief exports of the Stowe Plains, cabbages, and the fauna of the Stowe Plains, anything that ate cabbages and didn't mind not having any friends. Once you mastered the common denominator, it was straightforward. The girls had to colour in a map. This involved a lot of green. Lunch was dead man's fingers and eyeball pudding, a healthy ballast for the afternoon's occupation, which was sport. This was the province of Iron Lily, 
who was rumoured to shave and lift weights with her teeth, and whose shouts of encouragement as she thundered up and down the touchline tended towards the nature of, "'Get some ball, you bunch of soft Nellies!' Miss Butts and Miss Delcross kept their windows closed on games afternoon. Miss Butts ferociously read logic, and Miss Delcross, in her idea of a toga, practised eurythmics in the gym. Susan surprised people by being good at sport. Some sport, anyway. Hockey, lacrosse and rounders, certainly. Any game that involved putting a stick of some sort in her hands and asking her to swing it, definitely. The sight of Susan advancing towards goal with a calculating look made any goalie lose all faith in her protective padding and throw herself flat as the ball flashed past at waist height, making a humming noise. It was only evidence of the general stupidity of the rest of humanity, Susan considered, that although she was manifestly one of the best players in the school, she never got picked for teams. Even fat girls with spots got picked before her. It was so infuriatingly unreasonable, and she could never understand why. She'd explained to other girls how good she was, and demonstrated her skill, and pointed out just how stupid they were in not picking her. For some exasperating reason, it didn't seem to have any effect. This afternoon, she went for an official walk instead. This was an acceptable alternative, provided girls went in company. Usually they went into town and bought stale fish and chips from an unfragrant shop in the Three Roses Alley. Fried food was considered unhealthy by Miss Butts, and therefore bought out of school at every opportunity. Girls had to walk in groups of three or more. Peril, in Miss Butts's conjectural experience, couldn't happen to units of more than two. In any case, it was certainly unlikely to happen to any group that contained Princess Jade and Gloria Thog's daughter. The school's owners had been a bit bothered about taking a troll, but Jade's father was king of an entire mountain, and it always looked good to have royalty on the roll. And besides, Miss Butts had remarked to Miss Delcross, it's our duty to encourage them if they show any inclination to become real people, and the king is actually quite charming, and assures me he can't even remember when he last ate anyone. Jade had bad eyesight, a note excusing her from unnecessary sunshine, and knitted chainmail in handicraft class. Whereas Gloria was banned from sport because of her tendency to use her axe in a threatening manner. Miss Butts had suggested that an axe wasn't a ladylike weapon, even for a dwarf, but Gloria had pointed out that, on the contrary, it had been left to her by her grandmother, who had owned it all her life and polished it every Saturday, even if she hadn't used it at all that week. There was something about the way she gripped it that made even Miss Butts give in. To show willing, Gloria left off her iron helmet, and while not shaving off her beard, there was no actual rule about girls not having beards a foot long, at least plaited it, and tied it in ribbons in the school colours. Susan felt strangely at home in their company, and this had earned guarded praise from Miss Butts. It was nice of her to be such a chum, she said. Susan had been surprised. It had never occurred to her that anyone actually said a word like chum. The three of them trailed back along the beach drive by the playing field. I don't understand sport, said Gloria, watching the gaggle of panting young women stampeding across the pitch. There's a troll game, said Jade. It's called Agria. How's it played, said Susan. Uh, you rip off a human's head and kick it around with special boots made of obsidian until you score a goal or it bursts. But it's not played any more, of course, she added quickly. I should think not, said Susan. No one knows how to make the boots, I expect, said Gloria. I expect if it was played now, someone like Iron Lily would go running up and down the touchlight shouting, Get some head, you soft Nellies, said Jade. They walked in silence for a while. I think, said Gloria cautiously, that she probably wouldn't, actually. I say you two haven't noticed anything odd lately, have you? said Susan. Odd like what? said Gloria. Well, like rats, said Susan. Haven't seen any rats in the school, said Gloria, and I've had a good look. I mean, strange rats, said Susan. They were level with the stables. These were normally the home of the two horses that pulled the school coach, and the term-time residence of a few horses belonging to girls who couldn't be parted from them. There is a type of girl who, while incapable of cleaning her bedroom even at knife point, will fight for the privilege of being allowed to spend the day shoveling manure in a stable. It was a magic that hadn't rubbed off on Susan. She had nothing against horses, but couldn't understand all the snaffles, bridles and fetlocks business. And she couldn't see why they had to be measured in hands when there were perfectly sensible inches around to do the job. 
Having watched the Jodpud girls who bustled around the stables, she decided it was because they couldn't understand complicated machines like rulers. She'd said so, too. All right, said Susan. How about ravens? Something blew in her ear. She spun around. The white horse stood in the middle of the yard like a bad special effect. He was too bright. He glowed. He seemed like the only real thing in a world of pale shapes. Compared to the bulbous ponies that normally occupied the loose boxes, he was a giant. A couple of the jodpurred girls were fussing around him. Susan recognised Cassandra Fox and Lady Sarah Grateful, almost identical in their love of anything on four legs that went nay, and their disdain for anything else, their ability to apparently look at the world with their teeth, and their expertise in putting at least four vowels in the word oh. The white horse neighed gently at Susan and began to nuzzle her hand. You are Binky, she thought. I know you. I've ridden on you. You're mine, I think. Eh, say, said Lady Sarah. Who does he belong to? Susan looked around. What, me, she said. Yes, me, I suppose. Eh? He was in the loose box next to Branny. I didn't know you had a horse here. You have to get permission from Miss Butts, you know. He's a present, said Susan, from someone. The hippo of recollection stirred in the muddy waters of the mind. She wondered why she'd said that. She hadn't thought of her grandfather for years, until last night. I remember the stable, she thought, so big you couldn't see the walls. And I was given a ride on you once. Someone held me so I wouldn't fall off. But you couldn't fall off this horse, not if he didn't want you to. Oh, I didn't know you rode. I used to. There's extra fees, you know, for keeping a horse, said Lady Sarah. Susan said nothing. She strongly suspected they'd be paid. And you've got no tack, said Lady Sarah, and Susan rose to it. I don't need any, she said. Oh, bareback riding, said Lady Sarah, and you steer by the ears, ya? Yeah? Cassandra Fox said, Probably can't afford them, out in the sticks, and stop that dwarf looking at my pony. She's looking at my pony. I'm only looking said Gloria. You were salivating, said Cassandra. There was a pattering across the cobbles, and Susan swung herself up and onto the horse's back. She looked down at the astonished girls, and then at the paddock beyond the stables. There were a few jumps there, just poles balanced on barrels. Without her moving a muscle, the horse turned and trotted into the paddock, and turned towards the highest jump. There was a sensation of bunched energy, a moment of acceleration, and the jump passed underneath. Binky turned and halted, prancing from one hoof to the other. The girls were watching. All four of them had an expression of total amazement. "'Should it do that?' said Jade. "'What's the matter?' said Susan. "'Have none of you seen a horse jump before?' "'Yes. The interesting point is,' Gloria began in that slow, deliberate tone of voice people use when they don't want the universe to shatter, "'is that usually they come down again.' Susan looked. The horse was standing on the air. What sort of command was necessary to make a horse resume contact with the ground? It was an instruction that the equestrian sorority had not hitherto required. As if understanding her thoughts, the horse trotted forward and down. For a moment the hoofs dipped below the field, as if the surface were no more substantial than mist. Then Binky appeared to determine where the ground level should be, and decided to stand on it. Lady Sarah was the first one to find her voice. "'We'll tell Miss Butts on you,' she managed. Susan was almost bewildered with unfamiliar fright, but the petty-mindedness in the tone slapped her back to something approaching sanity. "'Oh, yes,' she said, "'and what will you tell her?' "'You made the horse jump up, and—' The girl stopped, aware of what she was about to say. "'Quite so,' said Susan. "'I expect that seeing horses float in the air is silly, don't you?' She slipped off the horse's back and gave the watchers a bright smile. "'It's against the school rules anyway,' muttered Lady Sarah. Susan led the white horse back into the stables, rubbed him down, and put him in a spare loose box. 
There was a rustling in the hay rack for a moment. Susan thought she caught a glimpse of ivory-white bone. Those wretched rats, said Cassandra, struggling back to reality. I heard Miss Butts tell the gardener to put poison down. Shame, said Gloria. Lady Sarah seemed to have something boiling in her mind. Look, that horse didn't really stand in mid-air, did it? she demanded. Horses can't do that. Then it couldn't have done it, said Susan. Hang time, said Gloria. That's all it was, hang time, like in basketball. Bound to be something like that. Until an unfortunate axe incident, Gloria had been captain of the school basketball team. Dwarfs don't have height, but they do have acceleration, and many a visiting team member got a nasty shock when Gloria appeared rising vertically out of the depths. Yes, that's all it was. Yes. The human mind has a remarkable ability to heal. So have the trollish and dwarfish minds. Susan looked at them in frank amazement. They'd all seen a horse stand on the air, and now they had carefully pushed it somewhere in their memories and broken off the key in the lock. Just out of interest, she said, still eyeing the hay rack, I don't suppose any of you know where there's a wizard in this town, do you? I've found us somewhere to play, said Glod. Where? said Leas. Glod told them. The men did drum, said Leas. They throw axes. We'd be safe there. The guild won't play in there, said Glod. Well, yeah, they lose members in there. Their members lose members, said Leas. We'll get five dollars, said Glod. The troll hesitated. Uh, I could use five dollars, he conceded. One third of five dollars, said Glod. Leas's brow creased. Is that more or less than five dollars, he said. Look, it'll get us exposure, said Glod. I don't want exposure in the drum, said Leas. Exposure's the last thing I want in the drum. In the drum, I want something to hide behind. All we have to do is play something, said Glod. Anything. The new landlord is dead keen on pub entertainment. I thought they had a one-armed bandit. Yes, but he got arrested. There's a floral clock in Quirm. It's quite a tourist attraction. It turns out to be not what they expect. Unimaginative municipal authorities throughout the multiverse had made floral clocks, which turn out to be a large clock mechanism buried in a civic flower bed with the face and numbers picked out in bedding plants. Or methane crystals, or sea anemones. The principle is the same. In any case, it soon fills up with whatever is the local equivalent of fast food boxes and derelict lager cans. But the quirm clock is simply a round flower bed filled with 24 different types of flower, carefully chosen for the regularity of the opening and closing of their petals. As Susan ran past, the purple bindweed was opening and love in a spin was closing. This meant that it was about half past ten. The streets were deserted. Quirm wasn't a night town. People who came to Quirm looking for a good time went somewhere else. Quirm was so respectable that even dogs asked permission before going to the lavatory. At least, the streets were almost deserted. Susan fancied she could hear something following her fast and pattering, moving and dodging across the cobble so quickly that it was never more than a suspicion of a shape. Susan slowed down as she reached the Three Roses Alley. Somewhere in Three Roses near the fish shop, Gloria had said. The girls were not encouraged to know about wizards. They did not figure in Miss Butts's universe. The alley looked alien in the darkness. A torch burned in a bracket at one end. It merely made the shadows darker. And halfway along in the gloom, there was a ladder leaning against the wall and a young woman just preparing to climb it. There was something familiar about her. She looked around as Susan approached and seemed quite pleased to see her. Hi, she said. Got change of a dollar, miss. Pardon? Couple of half dollars a do. Half a dollar is the rate, or I'll take copper. Anything, really. Um, sorry, no. I only get fifty pence a week allowance anyway. Blast. Ah, well, nothing for it. Insofar as Susan could see, the girl did not appear to be the usual sort of young woman who made her living in alleys. She had a kind of well-scrubbed beefiness about her. She looked like a nurse of the sort who assists doctors whose patients occasionally get a bit confused and declare they're a bedspread. She looked familiar, too. The girl took a pair of pliers from a pocket in her dress, shinned up the ladder and climbed in through an upper window. 
Susan hesitated. The girl had seemed quite businesslike about it all, but in her limited experience people who climbed ladders to get into houses at night were miscreants whom plucky gals should apprehend, and she might at least have gone to look for a watchman had it not been for the opening of a door further up the alley. Two men staggered out arm in arm and zigzagged happily towards the main street. Susan stepped back. No one bothered her when she didn't want to be noticed. The men walked through the ladder. Either the men weren't exactly solid, and they certainly sounded solid enough, or there was something wrong with the ladder. But the girl had climbed it, and was now climbing down again, slipping something into her pocket. "'Never even woke up, the little cherub,' she said. "'Sorry?' said Susan. "'Didn't have fifty p on me,' said the girl. She swung the ladder easily up onto her shoulder. "'Rules are rules. I had to take another tooth.' "'Pardon?' "'It's all audited, you see. "'I'd be in real trouble if the dollars and teeth didn't add up. "'You know how it is.' "'I do. "'Still can't stay here talking all night. "'Got sixty more to do.' "'Why should I know? "'Do what? Whom to?' said Susan. "'Children, of course. Can't disappoint them, can I? "'Imagine their little faces when they lift up their little pillows, bless them. "'Ladder, pliers, teeth, money, pillows.' "'You don't expect me to believe you're the Tooth Fairy,' said Susan suspiciously. She touched the ladder. It felt solid enough. "'Not thee,' said the girl. "'Ay, hey, I'm surprised you don't know that.' She'd sauntered around the corner before Susan asked, "'Why me?' "'Cause she can tell,' said a voice behind her. "'Takes one to know one.' She turned. The raven was sitting in a small open window. "'You'd better come in.' it said. You can meet all sorts out in that alley. I already have. There was a brass plate screwed on the wall beside the door. It said C.V. Cheesewaller, D.M. Unseen, B. Thou, B.F. It was the first time Susan had ever heard Metal speak. Simple trick, said the raven dismissively. It senses you looking at it. Just give C.V. Cheesewaller, D.M. Unseen, B. Thou, B.F. Shut up, just give the door a push. It's locked. The raven gave her a beady-eyed look with its head on one side. Then it said, That stops you. Ah, well, I'll fetch the key. It appeared a moment later and dropped a large metal key onto the cobbles. Isn't the wizard in? In, yes. In bed. Snoring his head off. I thought they stayed up all night. Not this one. Cup of cocoa ran nine, dead to the world at five past. I can't just let myself into his house. Why not? You've come to see me. Anyway, I'm the brains of the outfit. He just wears the funny hat and does the hand-waving. Susan turned the key. It was warm inside. There was the usual wizardly paraphernalia. A forge, a bench with bottles and bundles strewn over it, a bookcase with books rammed in anyhow, a stuffed alligator hanging from the ceiling, some very big candles that were just lava streams of wax, and a raven on a skull. They get it all out of a catalogue, said the raven. Believe me, it all comes in a big box. You think candles get dribbly like that by themselves? That's three days' work for a skilled candle dribbler. You're just making that up, said Susan. Anyway, you can't just buy a skull. You know best, I'm sure, being educated, said the raven. What were you trying to tell me last night? Tell you, said the raven, with a guilty look on its beak. All that... Da, 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 stuff. The raven scratched its head. He said I wasn't to tell you. I was just supposed to warn you about the horse. I got carried away. Turned up, has it? Yes. Ride it? I did. It can't be real. Real horses know where the ground is. Miss, there's no horse realer than that one. I know his name. I've ridden him before. The raven sighed, or at least made a sort of whistling noise which is as close to a sigh as a beak can get. Ride the horse. He's decided you're the one. Where to? That's for me not to know, and you to find out. Just supposing I was stupid enough to do it, can you kind of hint about what will happen? Well, you've read books, I can say. Have you ever read any about children who go to a magical faraway kingdom and have adventures with goblins and so on? 
Yes, of course, said Susan grimly. It'd probably be best if you thought along those lines, said the raven. Susan picked up a bundle of herbs and played with them. I saw someone outside who said she was the Tooth Fairy, she said. Nah, couldn't have been the Tooth Fairy, said the raven. There's at least three of them. There's no such person. I mean, I didn't know. I, I thought that's just... It's a story, like the Sandman or the Hogfather. According to rural legend, at least in those areas where pigs are a vital part of the household economy, the Hogfather is a winter myth figure who on Hogswatch night gallops from house to house on a crude sledge drawn by four tusked wild boars to deliver presents of sausages, black puddings, pork scratchings and ham to all children who have been good. He says, ho, 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 a lot. Children who have been bad get a bag full of bloody bones. It's these little details which tell you it's a tale for the little folk. There is a song about him. It begins, You'd better watch out. The Hogfather is said to have originated in the legend of a local king, who, one winter's night, happened to be passing, or so he said, the home of three young women, and heard them sobbing because they had no food to celebrate the midwinter feast. He took pity on them and threw a packet of sausages through the window, badly concussing one of them, but there's no point in spoiling a good legend. "'Ah,' said the raven, "'changing our tone, yes. "'Not so much of the emphatic declarative, yes. "'A bit less of the there's no such thing. "'A bit more of the I didn't know, yes.' "'Everyone knows. "'I mean, it's not logical that there's an old man in a beard "'who gives everyone sausages and chitterlings on Hogswatch night, is it?' "'I don't know about logic. "'Never learned about logic.' said the raven. Living on a school ain't exactly logical, but that's what I do. And there can't be a sandman who goes around throwing sand in children's eyes, said Susan, but in tones of uncertainty. You'd, you'd never get enough sand in one bag. Could be, could be. I'd better be going, said Susan. Miss Butts always checks the dorms on the stroke of midnight. How many dormitories are there? said the raven. About... Thirty, I think. You believe she checks them all at midnight, and you don't believe in the hog father? I'd better be going anyway, said Susan. Uh, thank you. Lock up behind you and chuck the key through the window, said the raven. The room was silent after she'd gone, except for the crackle as coals settled in the furnace. Then the skull said, Kids today, eh? I blame education said the raven. A lot of knowledge is a dangerous thing, said the skull. A lot more dangerous than just a little. I always used to say that when I was alive. When was that exactly? Can't remember. I think I was pretty knowledgeable. Probably a teacher or philosopher, something of that kidney. And now I'm on a bench with a bird crapping on my head. Very allegorical, said the raven. No one had taught Susan about the power of belief, or at least about the power of belief in a combination of high magical potential and low reality stability such as existed on the Discworld. Belief makes a hollow place. Something has to roll in to fill it. Which is not to say that belief denies logic. For example, it's fairly obvious that the Sandman needs only a small sack. On the Discworld, he doesn't bother to take the sand out first. It was almost midnight. Susan crept into the stables. She was one of those people who will not leave a mystery unsolved. The ponies were silent in the presence of Binky. The horse glowed in the darkness. Susan heaved a saddle down from the rack and then thought better of it. If she was going to fall off, a saddle wouldn't be any help, and reins would be about as much use as a rudder on a rock. She opened the door to the loose box. Most horses won't walk backwards voluntarily because what they can't see doesn't exist. But Binky shuffled out by himself and walked over to the mounting block where he turned and watched her expectantly. Susan climbed onto his back. It was like sitting on a table. All right, she whispered. I don't have to believe any of this, mind you. Binky lowered his head and whinnied. Then he trotted out into the yard and headed for the field. 
At the gate, he broke into a canter and turned towards the fence. Susan shut her eyes. She felt muscles bunch under the velvet skin, and then the horse was rising over the fence, over the field. Behind it, in the turf, two fiery hoof-prints burned for a second or two. As she passed above the school, she saw a light flicker in a window. Miss Butts was on her rounds. There's going to be trouble over this, Susan told herself. And then she thought, I'm on the back of a horse a hundred feet up in the air, being taken somewhere mysterious that's a bit like a magic land with goblins and talking animals. There's only so much more trouble I could get into. Besides, is riding a flying horse against school rules? I bet it's not written down anywhere. Quirm vanished beneath her, and the world opened up in a pattern of darkness and moonlight silver. A checkerboard pattern of fields strobed by in the moonlight with the occasional light of an isolated farm. Ragged clouds whipped past and away. Away on her left, the ram-top mountains were a cold, white wall. On her right, the rim ocean carried a pathway to the moon. There was no wind, or even a great sensation of speed, just the land flashing by and the long, slow strides of Binky. And then, someone spilled gold on the night. Clouds parted in front of her, and there, spread below, was Ankh-Morpork, a city containing more peril than even Miss Butts could imagine. Torchlight outlined a pattern of streets in which Quirm would have not only been lost, but mugged and pushed into the river as well. Binky cantered easily over the rooftops. Susan could hear the sounds of the streets, even individual voices, but there was also the great roar of the city, like some kind of insect hive. Upper windows drifted by, each one a glow of candlelight. The horse dropped through the smoky air and landed neatly at the trot in an alley which was otherwise empty, except for a closed door and a sign with a torch over it. Susan read, Curry Gardens, Kitchren Entlance, Keep Out, Rish means you. Binky seemed to be waiting for something. Susan had expected a more exotic destination. She knew about curry. They had curry at school, under the name of bogey and rice. It was yellow. There were soggy raisins and peas in it. Binky whinnied and stamped a hoof. A hatch in the door flew open. Susan got a brief impression of a face against the fiery atmosphere of the kitchen. Oh, no! "'Binker!' the hatch slammed shut again. "'Obviously something was meant to happen. "'She stared at a menu nailed to the wall. "'It was misspelled, of course, "'because the menu of the folkier kind of restaurant "'always has to have misspellings in it "'so that customers can be lured into a false sense of superiority. "'She couldn't recognise the names of most of the dishes, "'which included curry with vegetable, 8p, "'curry with sweat and sore balls of pig, 10p, Curry with swear and sour ball of fish, 10p. Curry with meat, 10p. Curry with named meat, 15p. Extra curry, 5p. Porn cracker, 4p. Eat it here or take it away. The hatch snapped open again and a large brown bag of allegedly but not really waterproof paper was dumped on the little ledge in front of it. Then the hatch slammed shut again. Susan reached out carefully. The smell rising from the bag had a sort of thermic lance quality that warned against metal cutlery. But tea had been a long time ago. She realised she didn't have any money on her. On the other hand, no one had asked her for any. But the world would go to rack and ruin if people didn't recognise their responsibilities. She leaned forward and knocked on the door. Excuse me, don't you want anything? There was a shouting and a crash from inside, as if half a dozen people were fighting to get under the same table. "'Oh, how nice, thank you. Um, thank you very much,' said Susan politely. Binky walked away slowly. This time there was no bunched leap of muscle power. He trotted into the air carefully, as if some time in the past he'd been scolded for spilling something. Susan tried the curry, several hundred feet above the speeding landscape, and then threw it away as politely as possible. "'It was very unusual,' she said, "'and that's it?' You carried me all the way up here for takeaway food? The ground skimmed past faster, and it crept over her that the horse was going a lot faster now, a full gallop instead of the easy canter, a bunching of muscle. 
and then the sky ahead of her erupted blue for a moment. Behind her, unseen because light was standing around red with embarrassment, asking itself what had happened, a pair of hoofprints burned in the air for a moment. It was a landscape hanging in space. There was a squat little house with a garden around it. There were fields and distant mountains. Susan stared at it as Binky slowed. There was no depth. As the horse swung around for a landing, the landscape was revealed as a mere surface, a thin-shaped film of existence imposed on nothingness. She expected it to tear where the horse landed, but there was only a faint crunch and a scatter of gravel. Binky trotted around the house and into the stable yard where he stood and waited. Susan got off gingerly. The ground felt solid enough under her feet. She reached down and scratched at the gravel. There was more gravel underneath. She'd heard that the tooth fairy collected teeth. Think about it logically. The only other people who collected any bits of bodies did so for very suspicious purposes, and usually to harm or control other people. The tooth fairies must have half the children in the world under their control, and this didn't look like the house of that sort of person. The hog father apparently lived in some kind of horrible slaughterhouse in the mountains, festooned with sausages and black puddings, and painted a terrible blood red which suggested style, a nasty style, but at least style of a sort. This place didn't have style of any sort. The Soul Cake Tuesday Duck didn't apparently have any kind of a home, nor did Old Man Trouble or the Sandman, as far as she knew. She walked around the house, which wasn't much larger than a cottage, definitely. Whoever lived here had no taste at all. She found the front door, it was black, with a knocker in the shape of an Omega. Susan reached for it, but the door opened by itself, and the hall stretched away in front of her, far bigger than the outside of the house could possibly contain. She could distantly make out a stairway wide enough for the tap-dancing finale in a musical. There was something else wrong with the perspective. There clearly was a wall a long way off, but at the same time it looked as though it was painted in the air a mere fifteen feet or so away. It was as if distance was optional. There was a large clock against one wall. Its slow tick filled the immense space. There's a room, she thought. I remember the room of whispers. Doors lined the hall at wide intervals, or short intervals, if you looked at it another way. She tried to walk towards the nearest one and gave up after a few wildly teetering steps. Finally, she managed to reach it by taking aim and then shutting her eyes. The door was at one and the same time about normal human size and immensely big. There was a highly ornate frame around it with a skulls and bones motif. She pushed the door open. This room could have housed a small town. A small area of carpet occupied the middle distance, no more than a hectare in size. It took Susan several minutes to reach the edge. It was a room within a room. There was a large, heavy-looking desk on a raised dais, with a leather swivel chair behind it. There was a large model of the Discworld on a sort of ornament made of four elephants standing on the shell of a turtle. There were several bookshelves, the large volumes piled in the haphazard fashion of people who are far too busy using the books ever to arrange them properly. There was even a window, hanging in the air a few feet above the ground. But there were no walls. There was nothing between the edge of the carpet and the walls of the greater room except floor. And even that was far too precise a word for it. It didn't look like rock, and it certainly wasn't wood. It made no sound when Susan walked on it. It was simply surface, in the purely geometrical sense. The carpet had a skull and bones pattern. It was also black. Everything was black, or a shade of grey. Here and there a tint suggested a very deep purple, or ocean-depth blue. In the distance, towards the walls of the greater room, the meta-room, or whatever it was, there was a suggestion of something. Something was casting complicated shadows, too far away to be clearly seen. Susan got up onto the dais. There was something odd about the things around her. Of course, there was everything odd about the things around her, but it was a huge, major oddness that was simply in their nature. She could ignore it. But there was an oddness on a human level. Everything was just slightly wrong, as if it had been made by someone who hadn't fully comprehended its purpose. There was a blotter on the oversized desk, but it was part of it, 
fused to the surface. The drawers were just raised areas of wood, impossible to open. Whoever had made the desk had seen desks, but hadn't understood deskishness. There was even some sort of desk ornament. It was just a slab of lead with a thread hanging down one side and a shiny round metal ball on the end of the thread. If you raised the ball, it swung down and thumped into the lead, just once. She didn't try to sit in the chair. There was a deep pit in the leather. Someone had spent a lot of time sitting there. She glanced at the spines of the books. They were in a language she couldn't understand. She trekked back to the distant door, went out into the hall and tried the next door. A suspicion was beginning to form in her mind. The door led to another huge room, but this one was full of shelves, floor to distant cloud-hung ceiling. Every shelf was lined with hourglasses. The sand pouring from the past to the future filled the room with a sound like surf, a noise made up of a billion small sounds. Susan walked between the shelves. It was like being in a crowd. Her eye was caught by a movement on a nearby shelf. In most of the hourglasses, the falling sand was a solid silver line, but in this one, just as she watched, the line vanished. The last grain of sand tumbled into the bottom bulb. The hourglass vanished with a small pop. A moment later, another one appeared in its place, with the faintest of pings. In front of her eyes, sand began to fall. And she was aware that this process was going on all over the room. Old hourglasses vanished, new ones took their place. She knew about this, too. She reached out and picked up a glass, bit her lip thoughtfully, and started to turn the thing upside down. Squeak! She spun round. The death of rats was on the shelf behind her. It raised an admonitory finger. All right, said Susan. She put the glass back in its place. Squeak! No, I haven't finished looking. Susan set off for the door with the rat skittering across the floor after her. The third room turned out to be the bathroom. Susan hesitated. You expected hourglasses in this place. You expected the skull and bones motif. But you didn't expect the very large white porcelain tub on its own raised podium, like a throne, with giant brass taps, and in faded blue letters just over the thing that held the plug chain, the words C.H. Lavatory and Son, Mollymog Street, Ankh-Morpork. You didn't expect the rubber duck. It was yellow. You didn't expect the soap. It was suitably bone white, but looked as if it had never been used. Beside it was a bar of orange soap, which certainly had been used. It was hardly more than a sliver. It smelled a lot like the vicious stuff used at school. The bath, though big, was a human thing. There was brown-lined crazing around the plug hole and a stain where the tap had dripped, but almost everything else had been designed by the person who hadn't understood deskishness and now hadn't understood ablutionology either. They'd created a towel rail an entire athletics team could have used for training. The black towels on it were fused onto it and were quite hard. Whoever actually used the bathroom probably dried themselves on the white and blue very worn towel with the initials Y-M-R-C-I-G-B-S-A-A-M on it. There was even a lavatory, another fine example of C.H. Lavatory's porcelainic art, with the embossed frieze of green and blue flowers on the cistern. And again, like the bath and the soap, it suggested that this room had been built by someone and then someone else had come along afterwards to add small details someone with a better knowledge of plumbing for a start, and someone else who understood, really understood, that towels should be soft and capable of drying people, and soap should be capable of bubbles. You didn't expect any of it until you saw it, and then it was like seeing it again. The bald towel dropped off the rail and skipped across the floor until it fell away to reveal the death of rats. Squeak! Oh, all right, said Susan. Where do you want me to go now? The rat scurried to the open door and disappeared into the hall. Susan followed it to yet another door. She turned yet another handle. Another room within a room lay beyond. There was a tiny area of lighted tiling in the darkness containing the distant vision of a table, a few chairs, a kitchen dresser, and someone. A hunched figure was sitting at the table. As Susan cautiously approached, she heard the rattle of cutlery on a plate. An old man was eating his supper very noisily. In between forkfuls, he was talking to himself with his mouth full. It was a kind of auto-bad manners. It's not my fault, Spray. 
I was against it from the start, but ah, no, he has to go and recover a piece of ballistic sausage from table. Start getting involved. I told him, it's not as if you're not involved. Stab unidentified fried object. Oh, no, that's not his way. Spray, jab fork in the air. Once you get involved like that, I said, how are you getting out? Tell me that. Make temporary egg and ketchup sandwich, but oh no. Susan walked around the patch of carpet. The man took no notice. The death of rats shinned up the table leg and landed on a slice of fried bread. Oh, it's you. Squeak. The old man looked around. Where? Where? Susan stepped onto the carpet. The man stood up so quickly that his chair fell over. Who the hells are you? Could you stop pointing that sharp bacon at me? I ask you a question, young woman. I'm Susan. This didn't sound enough. Duchess of Stowhelit, she added. The man's wrinkled face wrinkled still further as he strove to comprehend this. Then he turned away and threw his hands up in the air. Oh, yes, he bawled to the room in general. That just puts the entire tin lid on it, that does. He waved a finger at the death of rats, who leaned backwards. You cheating little rodent. Oh, yes, I smell a rat here. Squeak? The shaking finger stopped suddenly. The man spun around. How did you manage to walk through the wall? I'm sorry, said Susan, backing away. I didn't know there was one. What do you call this thing? Clatchian mist? The man slapped the air. The hippo of memory wallowed. Albert, said Susan. Right? Albert thumped his forehead with the palm of his hand. Worse and worse. What have you been telling her? He didn't tell me anything except squeak, and I don't know what that means, said Susan. But look, there's no wall here. There's just... Albert wrenched open a drawer. Observe, he said sharply. Hammer, right? Nail, right? Watch. He hammered the nail into the air, about five feet up at the edge of the tiled area. It hung there. Wall, said Albert. Susan reached out gingerly and touched the nail. It had a sticky feel, a little like static electricity. Well, it doesn't feel like a wall to me, she managed. Squeak? Albert dropped the hammer on the table. He wasn't a small man, Susan realised. He was quite tall, but he walked with the kind of lopsided stoop normally associated with the laboratory assistance of an Igor turn of mind. I give in, he said, wagging his finger at Susan again. I told him no good'd come of it. He started meddling, and next thing, a mere chit of a girl. Where'd you go? Susan walked over to the table while Albert waved his arms in the air trying to find her. There was a cheese board on the table and a snuffbox, and a string of sausages. No fresh vegetables at all. Miss Butts advocated avoiding fried foods and eating plenty of vegetables for what she referred to as daily health. She put a lot of troubles down to an absence of daily health. Albert looked like the embodiment of them all as he scuttled around the kitchen, grabbing at the air. She sat in the chair as he danced past. Albert stopped moving and put his hand over one eye, then he turned very carefully. The one visible eye was screwed up in a frantic effort of concentration. He squinted at the chair, his eye watering with effort. That's pretty good, he said quietly. All right, you're here. The rat and the horse brought you, damn fool things. I think it's the right thing to do. What right thing to do, said Susan, and I'm not a, I'm, uh, what you said. Albert stared at her. The master could do that, he said at last. It's part of the job. I expect you found you could do it a long time ago, eh? Not be noticed when you didn't want to be? Squeak, said the death of rats. What? said Albert. Squeak? He says to tell you, said Albert wearily, that a chit of a girl means a small girl. He thinks you may have misheard me.
Susan hunched up in the chair. Albert pulled up another one and sat down. How old are you? Sixteen. Oh, my. Albert rolled his eyes. How long have you been? Sixteen. Since I was fifteen, of course. Are you stupid? My, 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 how the time does pass, said Albert. Do you know why you're here? No, but... Susan hesitated. But it's got something to do with... It's something like... I'm seeing things that people don't see and I've met someone who's just a story and I know I've been here before and all these skulls and bones on things. Albert's rangy, vulture-like shape loomed over her. Would you like a cocoa, he said. It was a lot different from the cocoa at school, which was like hot brown water. Albert's cocoa had fat floating in it. If you turned the mug upside down, it would be a little while before anything fell out. Your mum and dad, said Albert, when she had a chocolate moustache that was far too young for her, did they ever explain anything to you? Miss Delcross did that in biology, said Susan. She got it wrong, she added. I mean, about your grandfather, said Albert. I remember things said Susan, but I can't remember them until I've seen them, like the bathroom, like you. Your mum and dad thought it best you forgot, said Albert. <laughs> it's in the bone. They was afraid it was going to happen, and it has. You've inherited. Oh, I know about that too, said Susan. It's all about mice and beans and things. Albert gave her a blank look. Look, I'll try to put it tactful, he said. Susan gave him a polite look. Your grandfather is death, said Albert. You know, the skeleton in the black robe? You rode in on his horse and this is his house, only he's gone away to think things over or something. What I reckon's happening is you're being sucked in. It's in the bone. You're old enough now. There's a hole and it thinks you're the right shape. I don't like it any more than you do. Death, said Susan flatly. Well, I can't say I didn't have suspicions. Like the Hogfather and the Sandman and the Tooth Fairy. Yes. Squeak. You expect me to believe that, do you? said Susan, trying to summon up her most withering scorn. Albert glared back like someone who'd done all his withering a long time ago. It's no skin off my nose what you believe, madam, he said. You really mean the tall figure with the scythe and everything? Yes. Look, Albert, said Susan, in the voice one uses to the simple-minded. Even if there was a, a death like that, and frankly it's quite ridiculous to go anthropomorphizing a simple natural function. No one can inherit anything from it. I know about heredity. It's all about having red hair and things. You get it from other people. You don't get it from myths and legends. Um... The death of rats had gravitated to the cheese board where he was using his scythe to hack off a lump. Albert sat back. I remember when you got brought here, he said. He'd kept on asking, you see. He was curious. He likes kids, sees a lot of them, really, but not to get to know, if you see what I mean. Your mum and dad didn't want to, but they gave in and brought you all here for tea one day just to keep him quiet. They didn't like to do it because they thought you'd be scared and scream the place down. But you, oh, you didn't scream. You laughed. Frightened the life out of your dad, that did. They brought you a couple more times when he asked, but then they got scared about what might happen and your dad put his foot down and that was the end of it. He was about the only one who could argue with the master, your dad. He'd have been about... Four, then, I think. Susan raised her hand thoughtfully and touched the pale lines on her cheek. The master said they were raising you according to... Albert sneered. Modern methods. Logic. 
and thinking old stuff is silly. I don't know. I suppose they wanted to keep you away from ideas like this. I was given a ride on the horse, said Susan, not listening to him. I had a bath in the big bathroom. Soap all over the place, said Albert, his face contorted into something approaching a smile. I could hear the master laughing from here, and he made you a swing too. Tried to, anyway, no magic or anything, with his actual hands. Susan sat while memories woke and yawned and unfolded in her head. I remember about that bathroom now, she said. It's all coming back to me. Nah, he never went away. He just got papered over. He was no good at plumbing. What does Y-M-R-C-I-G-B-S-A-A-M mean? Young men's reformed cultists of the Ecor God Bell Shamharoth Association Ankh Morpork, said Albert. It's where I stay if I have to go back down for anything. Soap and such like. But you're not, um, a young man, said Susan, unable to prevent herself. No one argues, he snapped. And Susan thought that was probably true. There was some kind of wiry strength in Albert, as if his whole body was a knuckle. He can make just about anything, she said, half to herself, but some things he just doesn't understand. And one of them's plumbing. Right. We had to get a plumber from Ankh Morpork. <laughs> he said he might be able to make it a week next Thursday, and you don't say that kind of thing to the master, said Albert. I've never seen a bugger work so fast. <laughs> then the master just made him forget. He can make everyone forget. Except... Albert stopped and frowned. Seems I've got to put up with it, he said. Seems you've a right. I expect you're tired. You can stay here, there's plenty of rooms. No, I've got to get back. There'll be terrible trouble if I'm not at school in the morning. There's no time here except what people brings with them. Things just happen one after the other. Binky'll take you right back to the time you left, if you like. But you ought to stop here a while. You said there's a hole and I'm being sucked in. I don't know what that means. You'll feel better after a sleep, said Albert. End of CD 2